I'm thrilled with today's guest, uh, John Bolton, former National Security Advisor under Donald Trump. Uh, prior to that, he was uh, Ambassador to the UN under George W. Bush. Prior to that, he served as the Assistant Secretary of State uh, under President George H.W. Bush and started out as, not started out, was also a U.S. Assistant Attorney General uh, for President Ronald Reagan. His book, uh, Runaway bestseller, The Room Where It All Where It Happened, a White House memoir, is now out in paperback. There's a new forward where he talks, and we're going to talk a lot about this, about his concerns of a uh, Trump presidency. When I look at your roster of working for presidents, you certainly were sliding downhill on the foreign policy competency scale, starting out with Ronald Reagan and ending up with Donald Trump. Well, Reagan is a historic president. I think he'll, he'll rank as one of the greats and uh, uh, that was that was a real honor to have the opportunity to do that. But I think both President Bushes uh, did excellent jobs. I think uh, they're they're they've been subject to some unfair criticism. Uh, but on Donald Trump, it's hard to imagine unfair criticism. Uh, and I I tried to explain that in the book uh, so that people who have never been in government uh, don't really know what goes on behind the scenes would would have some understanding of why I didn't think he was even fit to be president. We let's talk about going forward and your concerns and all of our concerns. I keep saying that the, what the Democrats need to do is really paint a picture of what a Trump presidency in 24 going forward would look like. Talk to me just as a guy who's been in the room, um, your concerns about Donald Trump with his hands and uh, steering the wheel going forward. Well, basically, uh, he believes that all international relations uh, can be measured by the personal relationship between heads of state. So, for example, if he feels he has a good personal relationship with Vladimir Putin, then he believes Russia-U.S. relations are good. Likewise with Xi Jinping, likewise with Kim Jong-un of North Korea, and so on. He doesn't feel that he needs to know much about the actual state of affairs, uh, what Russia's objectives are, what its capabilities are, uh, how they affect us and our allies, because he thinks uh, that the deals that he, want to he wants to make uh, are based on his assessment of how Vladimir Putin is at any given time and what he can do with that. Now, this is in complete contrast to the really hard men who lead our adversaries around the world. They know exactly what they think uh, is in their national interest. They may be right or they may be wrong, but they're not in any doubt as to what they want and what they want from the U.S. and Donald Trump at any given moment. I, I think he's like a babe in the woods when it comes to dealing with these kinds of figures, uh, which is which is obviously dangerous for the United States. Talk to me about. Let's move forward. Let's. What happens with Ukraine? Donald Trump's president. What happens with Taiwan? Donald Trump's president. Well, on Ukraine, look, he, he had a famously bad relationship with President Zelensky. Everybody remembers the perfect phone call uh, between the two of them in the summer of 2019 that uh, was a principal reason for Trump being impeached. Uh, everybody knows the opposite side. He thinks uh, he has a great relationship with Vladimir Putin. Uh, he uh, Trump has said if he were president, the invasion never would have happened. This is typical of the bluff and, and uh, bragging that he does. No, nobody knows the answer to that question, of course. Nobody can prove him wrong by definition. But Trump has also said if he became president, he would get Zelensky and Putin into a room together and he would solve the crisis in 24 hours. That's ridiculous, uh, clearly. And uh, uh, Zelensky's already said that publicly. So 
let's say he did get the two of them in a room for 24 hours and there was no agreement to end the crisis. That would be failure. But we all know Donald Trump doesn't fail. So it must have been somebody else's fault. And I uh, fear that the fault will inevitably fall on Zelensky uh, with with very positive consequences for Putin and the Russians. Uh, given that I'm worried our European friends are already shaky on this question of uh, this prolonged conflict in Ukraine, I think a Trump presidency combined with what he might do in terms of withdrawing the United States from NATO uh, could have serious negative consequences for Ukraine. It's interesting your concern and justifiably about pulling out of NATO, but historically you've also been somebody who's been frowned on a lot of international alliances, if you will. You're, you've called yourself an Americanist. Talk to me about that. Well, what I frowned on are uh, treaties that I think are disadvantageous to the United States uh, and membership in organizations from which the United States gets little benefit. So uh, for example, I have I have made a small specialty out of withdrawing from international treaties I think are bad for the U.S. Uh, in the George W. Bush administration, uh, it was uh, his campaign uh, uh, promised to withdraw from the 1972 Anti-Ballistic Missile Treaty, which we did. It's the right thing to do. It allows us uh, to create the kind of missile defense that would protect us uh, against attacks from rogue states like Iran, Iraq, North Korea. Uh, the technology that has been developed is phenomenal. We haven't gone far enough, but I can recall hearings back in 2001, the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, chaired by Joe Biden, joined by the likes of uh, John Kerry, saying you can't withdraw from the treaty. It's the end of international strategic stability. You can't hit a bullet with a bullet. In fact, you can hit a bullet with a bullet, and that's what's protecting Israel uh, in large part today. Uh, those are the kinds of treaties that uh, that I advocate withdrawing from because I don't think it's in the best interest of the United States to stay in. N NATO is completely different. NATO is not a kind of Western uh, United Nations. It is, in fact, the strongest, I think, the most successful political military alliance in history. And I think the idea that uh, Trump could casually depart from it, which I think he would do in a second Trump term, would cause the United States grave damage, not just in the North Atlantic, but around the world. Let's talk about a Trump second term and, and where try and describe as best you can. You know, a lot of people use the word fascist and he'd be a fascist. And, and I want to understand how he would, what his Justice Department would look like, what his Defense Department would look like, and how for lack of a better word, the relationship between the office of the presidency and, say, these departments would be different than any prior presidency? Well, I, I don't think it's right to call Trump a fascist because that assumes he has the capability to do uh, thinking at a philosophical level, which he does not. Donald Trump has no philosophy. Uh, he does not engage in thinking about uh, policies in, in the sense almost everybody else understands that term. Uh, he sees things on an episodic, uh, ad hoc, transactional basis. His decisions I've described in my book is like an archipelago of dots. You can try and connect them if you want, but I don't think he even understands a connection. And besides, his decisions can change so frequently that you can do your Venn diagram and it's wrong before you're finished. Uh, th this is the sort of approach that leads inevitably uh, to decision-making through the prism of what benefits Donald Trump. 
uh, I, I give incident after incident of this in the book. I'm not saying what benefits him uh, uh, economically could be politically or otherwise. So, so what is it that, that how this would uh, manifest itself uh, in the Justice Department, in the Defense Department in a second term? He simply doesn't think that there are any limits that apply to him. Uh, not not based on some philosophy, just based on his desire to have what he wants because he wants it. So I think the Justice Department would be under grave threat. I think his own political appointees at the Justice Department would, would be putting their professional reputations on the line because there will come a time not long after they arrive where they will get an order from Trump uh, that they only have two choices to do, either resign in protest over or carry out probably an illegal order. And I would say the same kind of uh, pressure would apply at the Defense Department, obviously in different circumstances, but but basically it would be Trump simply insisting he wants to do what he wants to do because he wants to do it. Well, that's the scary part. In his first term, uh, guys like yourself and Mattis and, and uh, Kelly and, and a lot of astute, strong people around him who were able to push back the concern in the second term is it would all just be lackeys just that everything would be every every position would be purely based on loyalty and their ability to just say yes yes mr fearless leader uh, i think that's right i think he clearly wants yes men and women around him and i think it's going to start with the vice presidency uh, he found in mike pence somebody who uh, by the way in private did great good for america by backing trump away from uh, some decisions he was about to take. Pence doesn't talk about it, uh, but I can't tell you the number of times we'd have a meeting in the Oval Office. It looked like it would be going in the wrong way. I'd go back down the hall to my office and close the door and put my head in my hands. And a few minutes later, Pence would walk in and say, I think we've got this taken care of. Most importantly, obviously, is what Pence did on January the 6th, for which the country owes him an enormous debt of gratitude. The next vice president in a Trump administration will definitely not uh, have the backbone of Mike Pence, and it will simply get worse down the line. You know, people talk about what happens in an eight-year presidential administration, and uh, it's it's basically that the quality of the personnel uh, goes on a downward slope, not a straight line downward, but it's simply a matter of reality that the closer you get to an end of somebody's term, the more people think of leaving, the less qualified are the people that come in, in back of them. And remember, Trump begins a second term uh, if he's elected. He can't serve a third term. So you're already in a lame duck position then. And I think the point you're raising about the quality of people who would want to serve in a second Trump term uh, is is a very serious concern. Well, I want to talk to a guy who, who's been in the room. And Mike, you said something just very matter of factly that we won't have a third term. Talk about how the machinations could exist with him in a presidency where there would be a third term and a fourth term and a fifth term with him and his, with his hands at the levers. That's my concern. Yeah. Well, uh, in 2020, uh, there had been an election in which he had been a candidate for president. Uh, in uh, 2028, uh, if he wins in 2024, he's not going to be on the ballot. And I think this question of what the Constitution says about two terms could not be clear. There, there are no loopholes here. Uh, for somebody like Trump uh, to, to try and avoid it. So there would be litigation and, and he would lose. And it's a lot more difficult when you don't have any electoral votes at the end of the 2028 election process uh, to try and steal it. Now, I also don't have any doubt 
that uh, within about 48 hours after he gets uh, into office, if he's reelected, he'll start talking about a constitutional amendment uh, to, to end the two-term limit. Thank God the framers of the Constitution made amending the Constitution very difficult. And uh, there is zero way I think Trump will be able to do that in four years. So while I don't doubt he'll try to amend the Constitution, he won't succeed. the moment, the first moment, you talk about so many instances in the book of, of uh, his unfitness for office, the first moment where you said, holy shit, what the fuck is going on here? Well, it occurred actually fairly uh, fairly early. You know, I, I started as uh, National Security Advisor on April the 9th, 2018. And two days before that, on Saturday, uh, Syria had used chemical weapons against uh, its civilian population. So, on my first day, in addition to getting the photograph for my ID and you know filling out my tax forms and things like that, we had to start decision making about uh, how to respond. Uh, and by Friday, Friday night, uh, Trump announced that the U.S., the U.K., and France would be uh, had already started attacking targets in Syria uh, to try to uh, restore deterrence and make it clear to the Assad government that use of chemical weapons was unacceptable. So that was less than five full days. But in the course of that, I could see already Trump didn't have any real strategic comprehension of what he wanted to achieve, how to get the Pentagon to do it, how to order decision-making. He didn't like being in the situation room. Uh, he'd prefer to make decisions in the Oval Office with just a few people around him. Uh, I, I am uh, uh, grateful that we were able to get a decision in less than five days, put together an international coalition and take action. Uh, but it was, it was not due to leadership by Trump. And this was just in the first five days. There, there were plenty of other examples of it uh, as well, uh, spread across the entire 17 months I was there. And I know from what uh, we know publicly about the time before I joined the White House and the time after I left, the record was very consistent across four years. Trump essentially does not know what he's doing when it comes to national security. Of course, he makes decisions. Some of them are correct. To take out Qasem Soleimani, the head of the Iranian Quds Force, was the right decision in 2020, uh, made actually several years earlier uh, and carried out when the opportunity arose. It's not that all of his decisions were wrong, but as I described it uh, in the book, uh, decision-making in the Trump White House was like living inside a pinball machine. And that's no way to keep the country strong and safe. You said that even that decision, which is the right decision, was made based on how it's going to look in the press and that that was kind of his motivating factor, not just how everything would play out electorally and publicly, as opposed to what's right and what needs to be done. Right. This, uh, it, it was, it was a uh, significant step to take out the head of the Quds Force. You, no, nobody can deny it. Uh, uh, when asked, well, why did he do that as opposed to some other things he also could have done related to Iran? I think the answer uh, almost certainly is that he knew this would be uh, a huge uh, event from the press point of view, that it would be very significantly covered and uh, he would get strong support really across almost all the political spectrum in the United States. That's what was interesting to him. For example, when 
Uh, he met for the first time with uh, North Korea's leader Kim Jong-un in Singapore to talk about North Korea's nuclear program. What absolutely fascinated him was the number of how many reporters would be in Singapore to cover what was a, a very significant international event. First time a leader of the United States had met a leader of North Korea. And, you know, the number, we knew the number would be large and Trump's telling it just kept getting bigger. I think we started with an estimate of maybe 125, 150 reporters. I think by the time he was done, there were a thousand reporters there. I mean, I think the actual number was maybe 250 or 300. It was a big number. It was a big event, yeah. but it wasn't a thousand. But from Trump's point of view, the bigger the coverage, the better the decision. Let's move to some current events. Um, you've talked about the, the, the term that's thrown out a lot uh, for Israel and Palestine is a two-state solution. And you've talked a lot about something very fascinating, very interesting, a three-state solution. Uh, talk to us about that. Well, I don't think the two-state solution uh, had any prospect for success before October the 7th, before the Hamas attack into Israel. It has even less prospect now. And the Biden administration's pursuit of the two-state solution, I think, is a waste of oxygen. My idea was that uh, looking at the what is the way to maximize the benefit for the, for the Palestinian people, who in many respects for decades were weaponized by radical Arab governments as a wedge against Israel, to keep them up close to Israel in refugee camps as part of the effort to drive Israel into the sea. Well, that isn't going to happen, and it's certainly not going to happen now. Uh, what I thought was to give the Palestinians the chance to be part of a viable economy, which the two-state solution would not produce. The Gaza Strip was never a viable economic entity, connecting it to dots on the West Bank of Palestinian uh, towns and cities wouldn't make it any more viable. For the good of the Palestinian people, you had to connect them to functioning economies. So what my proposal was to give sovereignty over Gaza back to Egypt. And as the Israelis and the Jordanians uh, divided up the West Bank, give, give sovereignty over the Arab areas of the West Bank back to Jordan. Not a perfect solution uh, to be sure, but if the two-state solution is dead, as I thought before and still think today, you better come up with another solution. Right now, after October 7, people are talking in effect about rebuilding Gaza, uh, which, which is simply a multi-story high-rise refugee camp. Uh, th this, is not, this is not something good for the people who are living in Gaza because it's never going to attract foreign investment and it's not going to be economically viable for the children and grandchildren of the people who are there today. Speaking of children, what, what frightens, you know, sometimes people think that, okay, there's 15,000 Hamas guys and 2 million innocent Gazans. Let's just lift out the Hamas guys. Look, they've been in control there since 2005, teaching school hatred of Jews, hatred of Israel. My concern is what do you do that a large percentage of the population has got to be radicalized at this point. So how do you ever solve that problem when you've got a large percentage of a population whose entire kind of hell-bent mission is to destroy Israel and kill Jews. Yeah, look, this is this is a very unpleasant part of the reality in in Gaza. Uh, you know, if it were a democracy and there were a functioning anti-Hamas party, that'd be one thing. It isn't. It was a totalitarian government that was uh, returned to office whenever they allowed a vote by by the residents of Gaza. A great tragedy for them. And I think people remember uh, the the films of. Uh, uh, Hamas fighters coming back into Gaza on October the 7th with Israeli hostages in the back of trucks and cars 
and seeing people cheering them as they drove down the streets. Uh, and it's one reason, frankly, why governments like Jordan and Egypt don't like the, th the three-state solution and don't want to take uh, Palestinians uh, uh, for resettlement. Uh, I think the thing to do here is uh, abolish the UN Relief and Works Agency, turn this matter back over to the UN High Commissioner for Refugees, begin a, a process of vetting uh, people in Gaza first. I think the West Bank is a separate situation, but Gaza... Uh, really needs urgent attention, obviously, since so much of it has been destroyed, and and begin taking people with young families and putting them uh, in, uh, resettling them in other countries in the region. This is not forced resettlement. Basic international refugee doctrine is that the refugees either return to their country of origin or are resettled in a third country. Obviously, none of them are going back into the territory of Israel, so for their own good, they should be resettled. And I think uh, if we can get that started and get some cooperation from countries in the region, uh, we've got a chance to make progress. Otherwise, I'm just afraid this is going to go back and in five or 10 years, we'll be right back where we are today. I hear you. Let's talk about Iran. And you've been very critical, obviously, of the uh, the Obama-Iranian deal uh, that, you, that you guys took apart. Uh, obviously, we're just coming off a situation where one of Iran's proxies just took out three uh, U.S. Uh, servicemen, and over the weekend there has been a response by the U.S. that they said they had taken out 84, 85 targets. Talk to me. Do you think the response is, is proportional? I know you've used the words, we need disproportional responses, and how would you handle the situation with Iran now as we deal with their proxy terrorists, whether it's Hezbollah, whether it's uh, the Houthis, wherever it is, it, it's, it comes back to Iran. Well, I think uh, from what we know of the, of the U.S. response so far, I, I don't object to anything they've done. Uh, the question is whether it will be sufficient, that is, whether they're doing enough. And uh, that, that's where I have my concern. Since October the 7th, Iran itself has paid no price, no price for the violence and, and the barbarity we've seen around the region, uh, because it's obviously not just Hamas in the Gaza Strip. It's the Houthi closing the Red Sea to commercial traffic. It's Hezbollah rocketing targets in northern Israel. It's the Shia militia in Iraq and Syria attacking our people and others, and, and in fact, Iran itself, pirating ships at sea, taking them back into their territory. You know, on uh, uh, Meet the Press yesterday, uh, uh, my successor, uh, Jake Sullivan, said, you know, we're not entirely sure that, this, that the situation in Gaza and, uh, and, and the Houthi rebels is entirely connected uh, because, because we, sh we should treat them, they're related, but, but we can treat them separately. Uh, this is the root of the problem with the Biden strategy. They are connected. Uh, what happened on October the 7th was not the outbreak of a Palestinian-Israeli war, not the outbreak of an Arab-Israeli war. It was an attack by Iran using one of its principal terrorist surrogates against Israel, part of uh, what the uh, Iranians have called the ring of fire strategy around Israel. It is connected. Uh, it, 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 is, it is turning up the burner under uh, conflict in one part of the region versus another to see how far Iran can advance its objectives. Now, their strategy may not be working all that well from their point of view. I don't think they anticipated Hamas getting pounded by Israel the way that it is. But the notion that somehow all of this activity occurred coincidentally uh, is just wrong. And if you don't understand that basic strategic point, then I don't think any response that uh, that you come up with is going to deal with the root cause of the war, which is Iran. 
You've talked in the past that we just have not held them accountable enough. What would you do right now as far as Iran, as far as with what's going on and all these proxies? Right. Well, just simply based on responding to what happened uh, when the three American service members were killed at the Tower 22 location, uh, I think that that striking uh, Shia militia groups and Iranian assets in Syria and Iraq, as the administration has done, is right. But I think you also need to strike uh, Iranian targets inside Iran and, and others in the region uh, to show that we will cross the red line that they established. If they establish a red line and then we say, okay, we're not going to cross it, they've won an important point. So what targets would I strike inside Iran? I'm not suggesting, at least at this point, regime threatening targets, but I would take out military bases in Western Iran that for close to two decades have been arming and training these Shia militia groups, supplying them with weapons that they've used to kill hundreds of Americans over that period. Our military has asked for this for quite some time. Now's the time to do it. I'd also take out Iranian air defense capabilities uh, along the Gulf and along the border with uh, Iraq uh, to, to show that we will go after targets that could impede us in the future. And they, they've got a lot of air defenses uh, and we could do a lot of good work eliminating them. I would do that and then see what Iran's response is. I'm going to let you go. Because you're so generous with your time. But before we do, Mr. Ambassador, I want to do, you know, I'm a former ad guy, branding guy, marketing guy. If I was going to put you on a 30 second commercial to talk to the American public about uh, your concerns about a second Trump term, go 30 seconds, John Bolton. Well, I don't think Donald Trump really has American national security at heart. He has Donald Trump's image at heart. Uh, and Donald Trump's public reputation. He doesn't understand the damage he could do uh, to the United States by failing to recognize the threat posed by China, by Russia, by North Korea, by Iran. He doesn't understand the harm he would do by withdrawing from NATO and other key U.S. alliances. Uh, his idea of what uh, constitutes security for our way of life and our economy uh, is fragile at best. Uh, and I think it's a real risk to the United States that we uh, need to avoid. Uh, Mr. Ambassador, thank you for the service to the country. The book now out in paperback, The Room Where It Happened, a White House memo by John Bolton. Uh, there is a new forward that I think is really, really critical. And as I said, I appreciate your service for our country, sir. Well, thank you very much. And thanks for having me.